Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Your expertise, particularly in this area of salvation and uh, bring lots of clarity. Um, I'm coming through a tough church situation where these very issues, particularly lordship salvation and what you said about um, surrendering your whole life to Christ, following Jesus as a disciple, making that full commitment, otherwise it's a false faith. I mean, the, our church is basically splitting over that, two elders versus three, and uh, it's just destroyed the church. So this is uh, a current issue to my heart, and maybe some of us have also experienced some of this in our churches. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what would you say what would you say to, um, I guess, a pastor or elder sitting in a, in a <clears throat> local church that uh, has significant disagreements within the church leadership on some of these issues? So if a pastor were to take <clears throat> a different view, uh, a theological position that you might lose your salvation or have to prove it by good works, and there's a difference in the leadership in the church. What would I say to that pastor? Well, technically it should be settled by a doctrinal statement in the church, but we all know that doctrinal statements can easily be sidestepped. I see it in my own institutions I've graduated from, that people can sign things and not be genuine. And even many, many cases, I hear of pastors coming into churches saying, oh yeah, 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 believe all that. And they come in and they try to shift the whole church. In fact, I was reading a post early this morning when I woke up that somebody posted on one of our free grace forums, I'll call them. I just tune into them. I don't participate in them much. But he just posted this. He copied and pasted a post from Facebook where this pastor was saying, I deceived my church. I'm a lordship salvationist. I came in there with the idea that I would just agree with everything they said and then slowly change them to the truth. But he says he ended up splitting the whole church and messing everything up. That was his confession. He says, he ended it by saying something like, I'm a liar and I'm a sinful pastor. That was his conclusion about himself. He didn't say he changed his theology. He just admitted his sin. Is he still saved? (laughs) In his view, you know, no lordship salvationist is 100% consistent with his, his view. So is there any... Oh, what would I say to them? Is there anything Uh, you can do in that situation? Well, you can try to hold them to their integrity, but people learn how to squirm, I think. And, 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 you know, everybody talks about grace. Oh, yeah, I believe in grace. And and I would say I believe in lordship. Depends on how you're using it. I believe in lordship sanctification. Uh, Absolutely. And yet, lordship salvation calls our view no lordship. The no lordship view. That's how one popular author has labeled it. The no lordship view. That's so derogatory and unnecessary to say that. If Jesus isn't Lord, he can't be Savior. He can't. If he isn't God, which is the primary meaning of Yahweh Lord, if he can't, if he isn't God, he couldn't save everyone. So to say that we don't believe in the objective lordship of who Christ is is absurd. Um, but that's different from saying, what is my subjective response to his lordship? Yeah. 
you see. We have to separate those. It's a matter really, it boils down to integrity, I think. Not so much theology as integrity. And we've all dealt with institutional issues about integrity and people who have changed the beliefs or come in under some other false pretense. Mm. It's not that you have to make Jesus the Lord of your life. It's, to have, it's that you have to recognize he is the Lord in, the, in that he is God. Romans well, 10. Yeah, I, I believe that there's a recognition that Jesus is the Son of God. Whether somebody fully understands that that means his deity, that's a question that even... I don't know if I'm speaking out of class, but Dr. Ryrie's not here anymore, so... <laughs> <laughs> but I was having a conversation with him driving him home one day, Dr. Charles Ryrie, and uh, he says, well, if you were to push me to the wall, I don't know how much a person would need to understand or that Jesus is divine or God. So there's, there's a little bit of gray area there. I personally think that a person needs to understand Jesus is the son of God and that that implies his deity. But uh, how much do they need to understand that Jesus as a Messiah is God? Um, I, I'll stand with Ryrie on that. Mm. <laughs> Questions? Comments? I'm interested in the uh, the era within the field of the free grace movement where there are still conversations going on on clarification of, of issues. There was a noise I didn't hear. You're interested in the... Um, within the field of free grace movement, the free grace movement, your <coughs> colleagues, which are the issues that are still being settled, still being discussed, and which there is friendly... Which issues are still being discussed in free grace circles? One big issue is the meaning of repentance. And within the free grace view, there's about four different views of repentance. And all four views can keep the gospel free and clear. Um, the, the, when we get into trouble is when we say that repentance is actually turning from sins because that actually then involves something we do for salvation. So the controversy is, my particular view is, that it means a change of mind. That's the view that um, uh, Dr. Grudem criticizes in 10 pages. He criticizes one note in my doctoral dissertation written 30 years ago. He, went, he criticizes one footnote where I quote a, a lexicon and he spends like 10 pages hmm. about that and I show how he misunderstood the whole quote and issue. Because from the very first century, uh, I have a, two grace notes. It was so long I had to make a two-part series of it that show that change of mind is the essential meaning of repentance all through Christian history. Now that doesn't mean that later, I mean even the strong lordship salvation, people says yes it means change of mind, but, and also you, you have to turn from sin. So they add onto it theologically, not lexically, but they add onto it theologically. And I could go into a whole hour of explanation about repentance because I get asked about it all the time, but that's one issue. Um, election is always there. Uh, because people are trying to reconcile man's free will and God's determination. And so you have different degrees there. You have some would call themselves moderate Calvinists like Dr. Ryrie, but he joined our Free Grace Alliance. And others who want to do away with any idea that God uh, has any sovereign um, will or knowledge about it. I guess that's fair to say. Uh, so that's another issue. Another issue that has popped up uh, really just within one group is that 
a person to be saved must believe in eternal security. And so their message is that you believe in Jesus as the guarantor of eternal life, which cannot be lost. They tack the cannot be lost. So a person has to understand up front that they can't lose their salvation or they can't be saved because it would imply that they have to do some works to keep it. And I personally disagree with that view. I believe eternal salvation implies eternal security. I think a lot of people inherently understand that. But, a, but I'm saying a person doesn't need to have that theological grasp in order to be saved. Because eternal life can mean different things in different cultures in, to different people. I asked an Indian one time, do you believe that Jesus gives eternal life? And he said, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Uh, uh, I believe in many gods. I said, okay, do you, do you believe that Jesus gives eternal life? And he said, oh, there's a man in, in Mumbai who's he's dead and his fingernails keep growing. <laughs> so what is eternal life to some? Countless reincarnations? I mean, we do have to have some kind of understanding of what eternal life is, that God promises life that goes on forever. It's Dr. Ryrie used to say, if eternal life can be lost, it's been misnamed. And I, I do believe he's correct in that. But to, uh, do we have to have a doctrine of eternal security in place in order to be saved. That's a controversy as well. Yes, that's, uh, I used to uh, be a member of that group and I uh, was on the board and edited many of their materials. I haven't changed my theology in, since I have been in seminary days, but they have continued to refine things to the point where they now say that a person has to believe salvation can never be lost or you're not saved. And I can't go there with them. And they've changed other things too. So, so that's the main issue though. Yeah, so a big controversy is the content of the gospel. We've abbreviated it on in, in the information boards, the COS, and there's this constant controversy about what does the person need to believe and some groups promote like a it's called now minimalist gospel that believe in Jesus for everlasting life, John 6, 47. And that's it. Uh, or everlasting life that can't be saved. We don't need to know that he died on the cross. We don't need to know that he rose from the dead. We don't need to know we're sinners. We may not even need to know there's a God. Some have said from that perspective. I can't go there myself. Yeah, it, it gets kind of out there, and uh, I think people allow themselves to get pushed in certain directions. What terms can we use other than reformed, or what does it even mean today? Well, that's a good question. Um, when I understand the word reformed, I, I'm thinking of people who go back to Calvin and a doctrine, a strong doctrine of uh, election, reformed theology basically defined by, I guess, a tulip and deterministic theology. I may not be defining it concisely, um, but when I read uh, Calvin and about Calvin, I read people arguing both ways for him, that he believed in limited atonement, that he didn't believe in limited atonement, that he believed in uh, sovereign election, double predestination, and that he didn't. Um, and I think the point that we have to see is that uh, my friend Andy Woods has written a book called Ever Reforming. I think some people look back to the Reformation as the do-all, be-all, period. Nothing more could be said. And yet, after Calvin died, they had the Synod of Dort, and that's when the, really the tulip came out. 
as after his death. Just like Jacob Arminius died without really settling the question, can a person lose his salvation forever? And he, he died, and, but then the, um, the remonstrance kind of defined Arminianism, I think. Um, so they were continuing to reform after the reformers were gone. And w w isn't it our job to continue studying the scriptures? I mean, the early reformers, early church fathers, they didn't deal a lot with eschatology. You know, they dealt a lot with the deity of Christ and, and issues like that, the Trinity. And, and now, in the last couple centuries, though, we've been really trying to deal with eschatological issues and questions. Uh, so, we're ever reforming. I, I like that title. We're always trying to refine theology. And I think if Calvin and Luther had lived long enough, they would have probably learned to say things a little different. Even greatly respected teachers in my training, and I could name them as Dr. Ryrie, there's things I disagree with them on about interpretation of certain passages and things, but I wasn't going to change his mind when I really became close to him when he was about 80 years old. I wasn't going to change his mind, and he probably wasn't going to change his mind. But I think given a chance and enough dialogue, people would continue to refine their views. I don't think I've ever changed my views. I've just refined them and learned to be a little clearer about them. So I don't know if I've strayed too far from your question, but, but in my view, Reformed is speaking of someone who is a five-point Calvinist, which is the only Calvinist I recognize. I don't think there's such a thing as a three-point or four-point Calvinist myself. I think you can't change the rules for the club. The club makes the rules. So They can believe that they have believed, but I would ask, what, did they, what do they believe they believed in? Again, it's the object of faith. A person can sincerely believe that the ice is thick enough to walk on. I really believe that I, I can walk on that ice, but they step out and they fall through it because the object of their faith was not worthy of their faith. Does that answer the question? Nope. Of course there are. And um, I think Matthew chapter 7 illustrates that. But again, it's, it's what did they believe. It's not enough to believe that there's God, as you put it. What, and it's not enough to believe that Jesus died for my sins, really. The, question, the, the real, I put it this way, you have to believe in the person, the provision, and the promise. The person of Jesus and who he is, he's the son of God, however far we want to define that. He's a transcendent divine being. He's God himself, actually, and that's what I believe, of course. You have to believe in the person and the provision that he paid the price for a sin. That means I'm a sinner and I had a need that he paid for. But then the most important thing is the promise, not the most important thing, but the third strand that you can't do without is the promise. Do you believe the promise that he'll give you eternal life as a free gift? Because our Roman Catholic friends, they believe that they're sinners. They believe that Jesus died on the cross for sin. They believe that he rose again from the dead, but they don't believe that salvation is a free gift. So they miss out that third part. So yes, there's people that think that they're saved, but I would have to talk to each person to find out what are you trusting in. And I've learned to ask the question, which uh, you might have heard comes from uh, Evangelism Explosion and, and Kennedy uh, decades ago. But it's a good question. If you were to die today and stand before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? 
And you have to give them a little time to think because they've never been asked a question like that. But some people will say, well, I've lived a pretty good life. Or I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose again. But, well, so do a lot of groups believe that. Um, what are you trusting in to get to heaven? See, and so the answer I'm looking for is he died in my place and gave me eternal life as a free gift, something like that. Uh, that's a diagnostic, I call it a diagnostic question. It's a very valuable question, I think. It's a what? Hard to crack. Hard to crack. I got it. Okay. Hard, we would say a hard nut to crack. But uh, Hebrews 6 passage is usually the one I get first when I go overseas and teach. And I think you have to understand the whole context of the book of Hebrews. First of all, it's written to Christians clearly all the way through. Holy brethren, brethren. He identifies with himself even in that passage. The passage, really that warning begins in chapter 5, verse 11, where he's talking about, I have many things to talk to you about, but you're babes in Christ. You're not ready for the meat of the word. And then he goes on, I've already taught you the basic principles of the word. Uh, and it's impossible. If, he's talking about going back into the Jewish system. It's impossible if you go back into that Jewish system to renew you to a repentance. I think what he's saying, it's impossible to restore what was lost. Even if, even if, uh, even if you realize you were wrong, you've still lost. Like he talks about Esau in chapter 12, who, when he realized he sold his birthright, repented even with tears, but he didn't get his birthright back. And Esau ended his life, I think, in fellowship with God, uh, by all, all indications. But he couldn't restore what was lost because he made a, a determinative decision. Moses didn't enter the promised land, never lost his salvation, but he didn't enter the promised land because he made a big mistake. And so I think he's warning the Hebrews is there's a, there's a point at which you can cross a line and you, not that you lose your salvation, but God will discipline you severely and like, like a field that is burned. There's still a field and the thorns are burned off it. If the field represents a person, one is fruitful and one has the thorns burned off, but the purpose of the thorns burned off is so that the land will be more useful. That's at the end of that warning passage. So just because there's fire mentioned at the end of that passage, often people want to throw hell into these warning passages. I wrote an article, Bibliotheca Sacra, for Dallas Theological Seminary on fire in Hebrews, where I talk about fire is often used in, for Christian judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3. And fire is used throughout the Old Testament, God threatening his people Israel over and over again with literal fire and metaphoric fire. Literal fire because he did burn down the city of Jerusalem. Uh, he, not he, but the, allowed the Babylonians, the Syrians to do so. Um, but fire was often a warning. It represented God's hot, zealous anger against sin. So, I'm not answering your, maybe I saying too much about that question but the warning passages I think are all to those Hebrew believers who were tempted to go back under Judaism and in doing so were siding with Jesus's enemies which is a very serious thing but they hadn't yet done so he says and I, I, I think better things of you he, he was confident that they would yeah absolutely I mean there's so many scriptures that point to assurance like John 3:16 or John 16 Acts 16 31 yes but a few passages are often raised, which I'm surprised I haven't heard yet, like 
2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Or uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 2, if you continue. Or Colossians 1, 21, 23, um, if you continue, he uses the, the conditional clause. But is he talking about if you continue, you'll be saved? In those, in those contexts, I don't think so. And I explained those in some of my grace notes and in my black and white book. I mean, it would take a long time to go into each passage. I'm willing to if you want to, but I probably wouldn't remember all of my arguments that are more articulated in my articles. It's a great book. Um, I, I hope most of you got a copy of that um, for the, with your winter Bible school packet. But if you come across a, a verse that is uh, disputed between free grace and reformed or lordship uh, on, you know, is it talking about salvation or is it talking about sanctification? Um, that Charlie's book, you just look up that passage and he'll, he does a great job of presenting both sides. And then, and sometimes there's two lordship explanations and one free grace explanation. Other times it's vice versa. So you do a good job of laying. So it's a great resource. And you may not agree with Charlie on that particular verse, but at least the arguments are laid out there for you to see. So I highly recommend that as a resource. It, I cover 130 passages that people often confuse with salvation and discipleship, A truth, B truth. And these are the questions I get wherever I go. So I just know what questions people are usually going to ask about those issues that confuse salvation and the Christian life issues and uh, identified 130 of them, put them in a book. There's a few more I've I thought of since. Yeah, and, and, and there, what I like too is there, Charlie's arguments and his, his conclusions are always based on the context of the passage. Uh, it's, it's actually a brilliant work. Um, Let's talk about James 2, because James 2 always, always comes up. And this was a big point of contention in, in my situation recently. Um, we've got, you know, faith without works is useless. I like to point that out. Faith without works is dead. What does dead mean in that passage? And then Abraham was justified by works. So what is justified? So maybe walk us through how you interpret that, Charlie. Okay, I'll do it quickly. Um, we have to understand, I think, in the passage what it means to be saved. What is he talking about? Saved from what? Many people assume it's saved eternally. We have to understand in the passage what dead means. Does dead mean non-existent? Or more the meaning of useless? And then we have to understand, is he talking about a, uh, uh, a destiny of of um, unsaved going to the lake of fire as punishment for having no works? Or is he talking about something else like the judgment seat of Christ, a judgment for all Christians? Here's how I would, without going there and looking at the details. If you look at the context, which is a, always a good place to start, James is telling his readers how to be doers of the word and how to make their faith useful. And uh, don't, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of it. What good is it if you see somebody's hungry and you don't feed them or see someone without clothes and don't clothe them? So make your faith useful. The context, if you were to look at 2.13, he says, judgment is without mercy to those who don't show mercy. 
He's talking to Christians there because he calls them again beloved brethren and so forth. So what judgment would Christians face? You tell me. What judgment do Christians face? Where we will be judged for our works. Judgment seat of Christ. So you'll be judged at the judgment seat of Christ without mercy if you don't show mercy. And then let's go to the other end, the book end, the chiasm or the, the other end. Je, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you presume to be teachers, lest you incur a greater judgment. For those who want to be teachers, be careful because you're going to be judged for what you teach. Judge for your salvation? No. The judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat of Christ in 2.13. Judgment seat of Christ in 3.1. So, let's interpret the passage in light of the judgment seat of Christ. Saved from what? Saved from hell or saved from an unmerciful judgment at the judgment seat of Christ? It just makes sense to me. Dead, in my book, I, I give seven, seven definitions of dead. And de the death, uh, death always means, uh, in some sense, a separation, not a cessation. And so, David Anderson has coined a term corpse theology. Well, no, that, applies, that would apply somewhere else. So is James saying that faith doesn't exist if you don't have works? Uh, I don't believe so. He's, he's saying that faith is useless. In fact, the uh, critical text and translations based on that in verse 20 use the word useless. Faith without works is useless. And I think that's what he means by death. Thank you. I think that's what he means by death, that a, a faith that is not worked out to help other people is just useless. It's useless to them. It's useless to me when I face Jesus at, ju at the judgment seat of Christ. And so Abraham was justified by works. There is a justification by works, but not before God. That's what Romans 4.2 says. If Abraham was justified by works, he says, if Abraham was justified by works, not before God. In other words, he could be justified by works before men. And so what do we see in James chapter 2? Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar, and he was called the friend of God. Other people were observing him and saying, look, this man has faith. And so his faith justified or vindicated. He was vindicated by his actions. Um, and that's, that's one meaning of the, the idea of justification. It's used in, in uh, that sense in the several other Bible passages. Uh, of vindication. Wisdom is justified by her children, Jesus said. Wisdom is vindicated by what those who follow it, children of wisdom. So I take James 2 as a passage teaching about the usefulness of faith. Heaven and hell is not in view. I think the judgment seat of Christ is in view. And it's, an, it's a great encouragement for us to not just be believers, but to make our faith useful by helping other people. And the motivation there is that we have to give an account for that someday. That's kind of a quick summary of that, how I approach that passage. But the context is valuable there. Yeah, another cool thing about that is James is the first New Testament book written, most likely. So you, it would be anachronistic to superimpose Paul's use of the kaiosune, uh, you know, righteousness and justification, back on James when James was using it in a different way, in a different context. That's a good point, yeah. Wish That's, I had made that. Yeah. A little bit, but 
<laughs> well, we haven't. Going, <laughs> we don't have a context for that conversation. I would have to probe and what did you believe last week? Yeah. What did you believe last week? That Jesus gives eternal life or not? Yeah. So what do you believe eternal life is? So I would have to probe with some questions. I can't make a blanket uh, answer to a question about what somebody might believe or not believe unless I ask them. I think you need to ask them that diagnostic question, you know? Uh, uh, something like that. I, it's so hard to answer questions like that without talking because each is an individual case. And what, do, what did you believe or what are you saying that you believe or what are you saying you don't believe? Well, you know, some people, I have no problem with using trust. Uh, a trust implies an act of the will. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that some of the gospel appeals that Jesus used appeal to the will. You will, you will not, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, but you will not come to me. But on the other hand, and he also talks about believing in, in the gospel of John quite a bit, but there's also passages that uh, talk about believing that. If you believe that I am he. So for some, it's, it's a matter of being convinced of who Jesus is and what he provides. And for others, it's more of a willful decision. I um, don't know if C.S. Lewis, Lewis is the best illustration of this, but he talks about being dragged kicking and screaming <laughs> into the kingdom of God or something. Because uh, I think he was willfully resisting the evidence that he had. So... I don't know we can put it in one category. Some want to say it's faith is just mental assent. They have this model of um, ascentious notitia, ascentious fiducia. We have to assent to something. No, we have to know something, notitia. We have to assent to it or agree with it. And then we have to have fiducia. But fiducia is the Latin word for faith. So really, what we really have to have is faith. It, I don't like that model at all. The Bible doesn't psychologize faith in such a fashion. Uh, I like what Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, I think he was, said. He said, the heart has reasons which reason does not know. Mm. I think sometimes people believe not understanding everything, but, uh, uh, but they're convinced about something is true. Um, we can call it faith, trust, receiving. I have no problem with those words, but... The predominant word is belief, so I prefer to use that and explain what it means. Believe what? Not just believe that Jesus died on the cross, not just believe he rose from the dead, but that he did it for me and he's my only hope of salvation. Mm -hmm. So I kind of drive it home. And your, the key to your testimony there was my Savior. You kept using the word my. I learned in, as a child that Jesus died on the cross for the world, that John 3.16 memorized and all that. It wasn't until I was 19 years old that I really realized, oh, that was for me. Okay. That was for me. And that, Is that the point you got saved? Uh, when I was 19, I think that's the point, and I can't tell you the day or time. It was the summer of 1973. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll have morning tea here. Maybe one more question or... Morning tea. Yeah. Or, sorry. We've been talking that long? Yeah. I'm not exactly sure about uh, the last part of what you said, but I think eating and drinking is a picture of a personal appropriation. Yes. Yeah. 
appropriation of the benefits yeah. of what his body and blood provided. Interesting, but when I was teaching in Africa one time and they were translating into their local dialect, I was trying to explain to them what believe means. And the translator just stopped me and said, oh, we have a word for that. It means to take God's words and eat them. In other words, to depend on what God is saying or to trust in what God is saying, to appropriate what God is saying. I asked Zane Hodges himself uh, if trust, if he liked the word trust. He said, yeah, it's a good enough word. I asked him how about personal appropriation. He agreed to that also, but he preferred to use the word believe because that's what John does. And I do know that we use it in a purely intellectual sense in our English language. Uh, and I think that we probably don't understand it when we do fully in the sense that the Bible is talking about really being convinced of something in the Hebrews chapter, assured of something in the Hebrews 11.1 1 sense. I, I, I don't know exactly how I would approach someone who is so confident, but again, I would, it would have to, I would have to deal with the person and say, what are you so confident that you believe in? And the introspective ones, they're difficult to, to deal with because they, they think with their feelings. I used to have a lady in the church and uh, she would be all happy about her salvation. Then she'd go to a Bible study by Kay Arthur, who's a militant Lordship salvation person. She'd come home from the Bible study every week and say, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian anymore. Michelle, you're a Christian. You believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Yes, yes. We go through the whole thing once again. It was just that over and over again. But she was a brilliant poet. Introspective people look within. They capture the feelings that us cognitive. Did you cognit on the assurance issue? Well, I, that was decades ago. So uh, I don't know where she is today, uh, frankly. I, th I think she's fine today. I think she's fine. But I gave you the illustration, I think, in the conference, uh, the school, that two friends went to Dallas Seminary to find out if they were saved. They, I said, you, all, you paid all that tuition money to find out you're saved. <laughs> and you might even know them if I mentioned their names. But uh, that's how introspective they are. And they even struggle after Dallas Seminary a little bit. It, it is a lot of human nature wrapped up there. I think maybe if they, they have a little insight into their human nature, they might be a little bit more objective, try to get them out of themselves. Might, it might help them to learn to think more, be more objective about themselves even. To ask a psychologist that. <laughs> I don't know. I, the Word of God is, seems to be the simplest answer, maybe too, too simple. But just keep focusing on His promises and what He says. That tends to get us out of ourselves into what God is saying. That would be my simple answer. Wow, well, thank you, Charlie. You have spoken how many times since you've been to New Zealand, and this is, you're released now, thankfully. So well done. Yeah. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.